This is the BSN Denver Buffs Podcast. Powered by the BSN Denver Podcast Network. Taking you beyond the field and inside the locker room. Goes between the left tackle, the left guard. Phil Lindsay, 40, 45, 50, 40, 35. Breaking away. Two tackles to be Phil Lindsay. 10, 5, touchdown, Colorado. Watson drops back. Throws deep. He's got Shea Fields on the 10. Caught. Five, touchdown, Colorado. Four snap on the punt. He'll be able to get it off. Isaiah Oliver back on the bus, 35-yard line. Uh, we'll take it there from the far side. Comes back to the near side. He's wide open. 40, 35, touches him under 30, 25, 25, touchdown, Colorado! Isaiah Oliver with his second pick, but return of the game. Amazing. The Buffs lead 19 to 10. Drops back, pressure from behind. Balls out, balls out, balls out on the field, and they break balls down. Colorado football, the streak lives. Back, throws over the middle, and that one is picked off by Tedrick Thompson. He got his pick. Colorado wins. Colorado wins 38 24 here at Bolson Field. Runs off to the right side. Falls out. Falls out. Picked up by Kenneth Malabone. Touchdown, Colorado. Touchdown, Colorado. Kenneth Malabone. your hosts, Ryan Konigsberg and Jake Shapiro. Happy New Year and welcome into the BSN Buffs Podcast, coming to you from the Blake Street Tavern Sweet Home. We are back uh, after a lengthy, well, it felt lengthy trip to San Antonio. It was only five days long. Ryan Konigsberg, Jake Shapiro here for the BSN Buffs Podcast. We'll be wrapping up the Alamo Bowl, uh, which was pretty disappointing if you're probably listening to this podcast because you're most likely a CU fan. We'll be wrapping up the season, which was nowhere near disappointing, and we'll be talking about a little bit of hoops as well, but we're going to stick to mostly football on this podcast, talk about some recruiting as well. Uh, Ryan, that trip to San Antonio, while the Buffs did not perform up to their capabilities, I think the fans certainly performed up to their capabilities. Yeah, and I think the podcasters performed up to their capabilities by warning everyone of exactly what was going to take place on that field. Uh, people didn't like it, thought we were too negative, uh, but that's that's what happened. And it was one of those things that you could see from a mile away. I love being right. Yeah, it's nice. It is nice. But hey. But the fans were awesome. And honestly. The, I think the coolest moment, and I'll cut you off, the coolest moment from the trip and, and this will lead into what you're about to say because I know what you're about to say. Is we were sitting you for usually do. <laughs> we were sitting for lunch on Thursday before the game. Uh, we went out Wednesday night with a lot of buff fans. We're sitting there Thursday night, running into the people we went out with, and uh, we're sitting on the Riverwalk on one side of the Riverwalk, and on the other side of the Riverwalk, people are starting the fight song and singing it so long that it's carrying over to the other side of the Riverwalk, and people are going back and forth singing the fight song on the Riverwalk. Uh, you're running into people that uh, you know that are inebriated more than you've ever seen them, uh, yelling, just go Buffs. And, you know, it's, it, it was really Boulder South down there. Uh, the game was a little bit more Oklahoma State fans. I assume they probably came in there just for that day because you can make that drive. But in terms of the entire atmosphere of San Antonio, it was really just all Colorado fans. It was awesome. And 
I'll, I'll admit that the one of the biggest reasons why the actual game was disappointing for me is because that's what I actually wanted to write about. I, what I wanted to write about was how amazing Colorado fans were that week. Uh, they showed up in droves. They took over the town. I mean, when you set foot down under that river walk, it was black and gold. It looked like uh, the, the corridor of Folsom Field when you're walking through those tunnels. And it was just so cool to see the payoff, you know. And I, I did actually write it in my lead a little bit, just seeing people hugging each other and high-fiving each other and saying, we did it, we're back, we finally made a bowl game. It was really, really cool to see from our perspective. And that moment when they're singing the fight song down on the river walk and it's just echoing throughout the entire thing, like, I got swayed. I was like, oh, oh maybe the Buffs are going to win. Like, the, the atmosphere is just so good down here. Obviously, our original thoughts proved to be more correct. But just, I think it was so cool to see the fans turn out like that and everyone kind of get their payoff, uh, take a couple days off of work, and go embrace each other. And what I learned was that through 10 years of suffering and pain and terrible football, the, the Buffs fan base was distilled down to the purest form of fan base. And I'm sorry, but I just don't think other fan bases are out at the bars knowing all the beat writers, no, you know. I legitimately felt like I knew half the people in San Antonio. It was so cool because Buffs fans have got down so to, to such a, a tight-knit group that they know us, we know them. People are telling us how much they love the podcast, which is so cool for us. Uh, it makes us so happy. Like, anyone that said that, thank you. Anyone who's going to say it in the future, thank you. Anyone who said that and bought us a drink, thank you even more yeah, so. You're, yeah, you're, that's great, too. But that to not me, saying you need to. Not I don't know. I don't know if it. Maybe I'm wrong on this. I don't think any other fan base in the country is like that. There's former players out there, you know, hanging out with the fans and the, and the media, all the same. And everyone. There are players. There's staffers. There are athletic department members just hanging out with the fans and media too. It's you know, special. The whole thing was special. That that to me was my greatest takeaway from San Antonio was this fan base has become the tightest, most pure, best fan base in the country. Because all the BS was weeded out through 10 years of crap. And now you've got the coolest fan base there is. And I thought that was the most amazing thing about San Antonio. And I'll say this, too, because one of the things you said to me earlier this season is it's kind of upset. It's kind of upsetting that the Buffs are going to go to a major bowl this year because, you know, you said it would be kind of cool if they went to Shreveport or some place, some bad place like that. So you could just see Colorado take over the city. Despite San Antonio's size, despite the Alamo Bowl's importance, uh, San Antonio, the area where everyone was, was so small and so close together that it really just did felt like Colorado owned San Antonio for that weekend. So, you know, it, it was kind of the perfect situation in that aspect where you really got that whole, you know, Colorado's back type feel. Right. Uh, I mean, like, bowl. we're sitting on a porch drinking a margarita on Wednesday evening and, like, Rick George is walking by and, like, making jokes with us. And Lance Carl is like, oh, you got to check their IDs. Like, that's so cool because that, that Riverwalk really is a small city. I mean, it's a little small town that everyone was concentrated into. So it basically was, like, Shreveport or whatever with a, where, you know, CU fans were going to run the whole bar scene. 
I just, the whole experience was amazing to me in that sense to see, I mean, it's perfect for Rick George to go around, shake some hands, kiss some babies, make some money, uh, which I'm sure he made plenty of. That's cool to me. And I think you're right in saying that San Antonio kind of ended up being the perfect place for just what I was talking about. In terms of the game, in terms of the opponent, it was probably whatever the opposite word of perfect was. It was basically a nightmare from the get-go. Uh, we, we said a little bit earlier, but we, we tried to warn you guys. It was The team did not have the same attitude that they had uh, before they beat Utah that they had after they beat Utah. And you saw them twice on the national stage kind of fall flat on their butts, uh, both in Santa Clara and in San Antonio. Uh, the San Antonio game, I think, to both of us, felt less of a drubbing than Washington, even though Buffs really did have a chance at halftime against Washington. And it's only a one point different on the scoreboard. Right. But uh, that Washington game really felt like Washington commanded and they were the better team, whereas Oklahoma State, it just felt like the Buffs did not show up in any facet of the game. And it was so weird because there were so many injuries across the board for Colorado, and you'd think after a month that they, would, that they would be able to healthiest. get healthy. And it seemed like they got less healthy. And uh, the schemes, almost everything that was possibly could go wrong for a football team went wrong. That game, the play calling, everything. Uh, there's just so many takeaways, and I think almost every single one of them was negative from that football game. Really tough. And there's a couple ways you can look at it, because the way I look at it is, like we've mentioned before the game, they weren't all that interested in winning. Um, I think going forward, they, they wouldn't have a performance like that in a bowl game. They didn't know how to handle it. Uh, they were given a reward. They were given very few rules. And they were given full reign of a city that they never had anything like that before. Um, and that's, I think, fair. I think it was fair of Coach McIntyre to let them have a, a little bit extra on the leash. Oklahoma State had that same thing, but they knew how to handle it. Right. I mean, they'd been to 11, that was their 11th consecutive bowl game. They knew exactly what they were doing. There were no seniors on Colorado to get, go, hey, you know, party as much as you want Monday, Tuesday night, but you got to stop Wednesday. There right. was and nobody to tell them when they should and shouldn't do the things that they were doing or how they should approach it or when they should be watching film. Just simple things. And I think even, in my opinion, Mike McIntyre made a mistake in when he turned his focus to Oklahoma State. I felt like he turned his focus to Oklahoma State about 10 to 12 days before the bowl game, whereas they had 20 days. They, you know, they took you know, seven days really to themselves. And to me, that was a mistake as well. So it's not just, I think, the players. I think it was a little Mike McIntyre as well. I think it was too. I think I think Coach gave them a little bit too long of a leash before the game. Um, you know, that, that was a team with, like you said, such little experience. They were going to take all the leash they got. Um, they had never been put in a situation where they had to figure that out before. So I think you're right there. I think you saw Oklahoma State, a team that took advantage of the entire month scheming for Colorado. Look at third down and short. Sefo Lufau has been money, 100%. You can mark it down first and 10 anytime it was third and short. They knew exactly what the Buffs were going to do on third and short, and they schemed up a defense that knew how to stop it. That, to me, was me saying they took advantage of that time better than CU did. CU didn't necessarily have the answers. And then another thing that I thought was telling was Coach McIntyre throwing Cheeto and Akello after a little bit of, I think, begging on Akello's part, throwing them out there when they really, truly weren't ready to play. Coach said, you know, oh, they, they were giving it their all. They wanted to go out there on that field. And, and I understand from his perspective, he felt they deserved the chance to go out there. But, 
if you're really all that concerned about winning this football game, I don't think you do that. They, they didn't deserve the chance to stay out there. Right, and I think it was one of those things where Coach McIntyre, it was like an achievement award for them. Like, congratulations, you made it here. I'm going to let you go down on your last game on this field in that uniform. Uh, whatever happens, you're going down with it. And I respect him for that, and I understand that. But it, you see what it means when people tell you that a bowl game is a glorified exhibition. If you're playing with something really on the line there, you probably have to come up with a better idea than just let's see what happens. Yeah, and that to me seemed like the whole thing. And you go back to talking about they didn't really know how to approach the week. I was the only one uh, that didn't work for the CU Buffs uh, besides Sam Weaver. She was there who works for us. Uh, me and Sam sat outside the locker room after the game, and we were talking to guys and you know, getting exclusive quotes. And one of the things that was a common theme was that, like you just said, they didn't, they kind of hinted at it. They didn't explicitly say it, but they didn't know how long the week was going to be, and they didn't know how to approach it. And it took them, I think, for a little bit of shock what it all entailed being at a bowl game and all the events that surround it. I think it was an interesting quote from Ryan Muller to you after the game. He said something like, we didn't know how to handle this. We... We had never been here before in a bowl game, not, and especially against a team like Oklahoma State. And then, like, he's like, but that wasn't a distraction. And it was like, of course it is. You just 100% admitted that it was a distraction because you guys didn't know how to handle it. So they know, like, they wanted to be honest and say, say the right things at the same time. But the point was clear. This was a team in Oklahoma State, a coach in Mike Gundy, who knew exactly what he was doing. Uh, he's like, okay, we're going to go have our fun. We're going to mess around a little bit, but we're going to crack down, prepare to win a football game. Like, even the one press conference we went to, like, Mike Gundy was all just, like, cheery. Like, I think he, like, I think he was so confident in the fact that he was going to win that game that he just was, you know, he was let loose. I mean, he, he, had a, he knew he had a coach in Mike McIntyre that had never coached in a bowl game. No, that's not true. No, he, not... Didn't, he didn't coach in that bowl game. Oh, he got right. them to the bowl game. He didn't coach in that bowl game. True. And he, and Did Mike, they not play in a bowl game the year before? No. And, he had, and one of the things Mike McIntyre even said to the media is that he had to ask David Cutcliffe a, a lot of different questions about how to approach it. And he had to go back and look at that schedule that they had in San Jose State and see what they did. He wasn't there. He didn't know. And I think Mike Gundy, he knew Colorado was a solid football team, but he kind of licked his chops saying, oh, my God, none of them have any idea what they're doing in this. I mean, you even this happens in the pros. You look at the Broncos in the 2013 Super Bowl. They had a Super Bowl 48. They didn't know how to handle it. I mean, even, you know, guys like Peyton Manning were unprepared, and maybe that's a totally different I, – I would never say that Peyton Manning didn't prepare hard enough, but they looked confused. He had a team around him that went out and partied every night, and they took advantage of the Super Bowl because if you talk to anybody who's ever played in a Super Bowl, they will always give the advice to younger players by saying – cherish that and live it up because you may never get back there again and I think Broncos players in that in that season took it a little too much to heart well these buffs especially the seniors they knew they were never going to taste that again and they never had a chance to do it before so they were like let's let's take this and soak it up and from a fan perspective I can totally understand why you're really disappointed you felt your team got embarrassed in a bowl game and in a sense they did I would just say don't be mad about it because these are kids we're talking about. And when you look at it on the surface, can you really blame them for taking advantage of an opportunity they had never had before from a sense off of the football field? They got a chance to, I think, reflect on the season a little bit after the Pac-12 championship game. 
you know, they had a, they had a month there about. And the things that made them great as a football team in terms of being the underdogs and proving everyone wrong and not wanting to be walking around Boulder being called trash and all these different things that you hear and you read in Ryan's Cepho story that, you know, Cepho even hints at. All of those things, when they had time to reflect and kind of mull over the season, all those things disappeared because they thought they were, you know, for lack of a better word, they were thought they were the it, you know. Uh, they thought they had br- brought CU back again. They thought they had made CU great again. But they didn't fully do it. And they were close, but they didn't get there all the way. And, you know, whether that has a lasting program on, or, uh, effect on the program, I couldn't tell you yet. It's way too soon to be talking about whether this type of attitude or the one prior that the, that the season had prior is going to carry into next season. It's, it's way too early for that. We'll have to talk about that in spring ball. But... What I can tell you is that this was a team, despite its leadership, that was very rookie in its mentality and its approach to the game. And, you know, when you get in that us-versus-the-world mindset, that can be a great mindset. It can really inspire a football team. It can really inspire a group of people to really want to hurt people and chop them down and prove everyone wrong. But as soon as you do that and you have time to think, oh, the world's kind of on our side now, that disappears. And you kind of think people are rooting for you, and then all of a sudden you're hunger, and it's a snowball effect. And we know this. This team was not as talented as Oklahoma State. This team was not as talented as Washington. This team was nowhere near as talented as UCLA. This team was probably one of the least talented teams in the Pac-12, at least in the bottom three. And (laughs) it's all about a mindset, and that's why they played so well this season. And once that disappeared, their talent came through. And it wasn't enough. And that's the post-mortem on the season is the fact that Mike McIntyre, Cephal Lufau, the leaders of this team, Kenneth Olobode, you know, all these guys that were the captains, George Frazier, found a way to inspire a group of men and turn them into a great football team. But that inspiration lacked when it came down to the national stage. And that's so well put. I think it makes it very clear, and I wrote it in my story, 12-win heart, 6-win talent. And you saw six-win football teams in those two games. It makes it so clear what the next step is. It's very, it's very obvious. You have to recruit. And all of a sudden, you're great players away from being great. Like I said, they made see you good again. That's awesome because they were trash. They went from trash to good. That's huge. That's an amazing jump. Now it's really clear and really obvious there's only one thing keeping them away from being great, and that's talent. We're going to talk about talent in a second. We're also going to talk about the legacy of this team. But first, I've got to tell you that that segment was brought to you by Colorado Keg House in Broomfield, right next to the First Bank Center with 75 Colorado craft beers on tap. They are the home for Colorado craft beer, from wheat beers to nitros to IPAs to owls. Nobody <sighs> does craft beer like the Colorado Keg House. You can sit at their huge bar their tables, or their lounge area, no matter where you sit, you'll be in front of a TV with sports on. So next time you're looking for something to do, go down to the Colorado Keg House off of Wadsworth and 36 in Broomsfield. We started getting into it a little bit, but looking at the season as a whole, the Buffs end at 10-4, uh, and four, which is the same record of the basketball team right now, both completely different uh, vibes towards those seasons currently. but 10-4, uh, I, I got gotcha. you. <laughs> I can't. Here we go. It. All right. Uh, well, moving forward now, uh, tried to sneak that one in there. 
the the buffs uh this is going to go down as one of the greatest seasons in colorado football history of all time uh we'll get into the legacy of this season but inside of this season uh certainly nobody expected it we've talked about it so many times uh we've talked about it ad nauseum uh so much so that you might throw up because of nauseous nauseum uh that's the point of that phrase is it really yeah oh i didn't know that uh, i think <laughs> It's like facade. I don't know anything about Speaking Latin. Speaking of facade, how nice was the facade out there at Texas, A&M, uh, Texas Tech? Texas Tech has a top five facade. Oh, my God. It was so good. Uh, but, uh, you know, I think Alamo this. Alamo Dome had a nice facade, too. It was. It was, it was more newer than the, the Texas Tech. More newer. More newer. Nice. Yeah. We're just we're rolling through the second segment so far. It always takes one good pun to just throw us off and we're just off the rails but looking back at this season it was quite the year so many memorable moments uh especially that oregon game that was probably maybe the peak of the season those back-to-back uh that those back-to-back wins uh in washington state and utah at home are going to go down as two huge wins for mike mcintyre at the end of the day i want to ask you this to, to start off with this question uh, which win will be looked back at like 86 Nebraska, do you think? Or is it because to me, it's going to be the back to back Washington State Utah wins where you really knew it was solidified that this program had made the turn? Uh, I think Oregon, in a smaller sense, was the turnaround. That's when they knew. Like they had talked the talk. That's when they started walking the walk. And I don't care what Oregon's record was at the end of the season. I. I've said this enough on this podcast. It doesn't matter. That was when they realized they could w- they could walk the walk. And maybe they realized that at Michigan too. But this was, now we know how to get it done. And for them, I think it could have been, maybe when you look back on the program as a whole, you'll say this that those two games at the end were really – the turnaround that launched them. But I think really you got to go back and say that Oregon game is when it flipped, when they realized we're not getting close anymore, we're winning these football games. Yeah, and uh, obviously there was that flip, but you know, more inside the season stuff, the, the team's offense declined as the season went along. The defense stayed pretty consistent besides from the last two games where they looked just incredible uh, almost all year round. Uh, a lot of areas of improvement all year round, uh, and we'll get into those in a second. But we're going to start off by giving some awards out, uh, and we'll branch out from there. Uh, we'll give out the Offensive MVP Award first, and I'm going to go with one that uh, may be different than what you might go with, Ryan. I'm going to go with Shea Fields. I think Shea Fields had an absolutely terrific year. Uh, kind of quietly, he ended up with 56 catches for 883 yards and 9 TDs. Uh, yes, you know what? He didn't go over 1,000 yards like P. Rich and Nelson Spruce, and he didn't have as many catches. But a guy in Devin Ross had 69 catches, nice, for 787 yards and 5 TDs. And Bryce Bobo was also there. When P. Rich and Nelson Spruce were doing those things, they didn't really have those other guys to rely on. And uh, one of the biggest questions this year was Devin Ross and were Bryce Bobo going to be able to step up and be re- reliable number two wide receivers? Well, both of them were reliable number two wide receivers, and Shea Fields was really able to do his thing as the number one wideout, especially earlier on on the season. Shea Fields was an absolute monster. I like that pick. The difference for me between choosing your guy and choosing my guy was expectation, and everyone expected that of Shea Fields. What people didn't expect was 
Devin Ross to have 69 nice catches and 787 yards. I mean, 787 yards from a guy that people were talking about after last year saying he should move to defensive back. Now you're talking about one of the best second receivers in the one of the best slot receivers in the Pac-12 and that's a lot of production, 787 yards and five touchdowns. I mean, that's insane from a guy that you didn't know what you were going to get. All of a sudden, you got a kid who now going into this next season will probably be playing for a chance at the NFL. And he looks really good, at least from what we saw this year. I think he's going to get a chance at the next level with his speed. So, And I think he was missed a couple times late. So Devin, to me, gets the nod. And I'd be remiss to not mention Philip Lindsay because that's another guy who, I mean – we got called out for it. I didn't even predict him to lead the team in rushing yards. Yeah, uh, and both those guys I'm going to sneak up on on most improved players, so we'll get on to that in a second. Uh, but the defensive MVP, for me, uh, that's Tedrick Thompson. Tedrick Thompson had an unbelievable year. Uh, you know, maybe everyone looks at Cheeto Ouzi, uh and Jimmy Gilbert, and rightfully so, both of those guys are terrific. But Tedrick Thompson brought it to a whole new level this year. Uh, especially making key plays, was always seeming to do that. He provided an energy that was needed on the defense. He was the one guy that you looked at that the defense where you go, where you go when he, where he's on the football field. When he's off the football field, he's the nicest guy ever. When he's on the field, you're like, oh, my God, this guy's legitimately crazy. He might rip someone's head off. And Tedrick Thompson brought that attitude almost to every single football game. And uh, he could have played linebacker. He could have played defensive back. He played cornerback. He, he played so many different positions for this team in different roles. Uh, they moved him all over the field, and he was a menace wherever they put him. Yeah, I love that. Um, he, actually, the way you just described him, he had a T.J. Ward-esque impact on the field for that defense where you can trust him anywhere. I mean, he's great stopping the run. He's great in coverage. He had the most picks on the team. So that's a good pick. I'm again going to go with a guy I didn't expect it from in Akella Witherspoon. This man came in to this season as, I mean, I thought Isaiah Oliver was going to pass him up for the second corner on this team. And all of a sudden, Akella Witherspoon is a legit cover corner. I mean, a legit cover corner prospect in the NFL. He led the country in pass breakups because no one wanted to throw at the other guys. And he used that length that we saw on tape before he came to see you on the field when he got there, and he finally got his mechanics down to, I mean, serious NFL-caliber stuff. I don't know if this defense is where they are without having that second guy who absolutely shut everyone down over there. Now, maybe I'm being a little overzealous giving him defensive player of the year, I want to give it. I, almost, I want to call him MVP or some, you know, something along those lines because I think he's the the part of that secondary. The secondary is only as strong as its weakest link, and he made sure that he wasn't that this season, and that made them great. No doubt, he was a really good player, and the guys that we have and girls that we have that do NFL draft stuff for us, Andre Simone and Sam Weaver. Uh, both fell in love with Akella Witherspoon this year and all the different valuables and intangibles he could bring to the NFL. He was basically the potential of uh, Ken Crawley. He has a lot of that potential, but he's actually a good college football player too. 
because Ken Crawley lacked that portion of his game. Yeah, I don't know what happened with Ken Crawley. He just never came into it. That was like the first big recruit that Embry got. Everyone was like, here we go. Like He, he flipped him from Tennessee. But that whole secondary is NFL players, which is just crazy. Never at CU have we – I don't – I mean – you got to go way back before you talk about a secondary full. Even when they were good in the early 2000s, everyone hated the secondary. Um, or not hated, but it, was, it wasn't up to par. So that, to me, is that secondary. And Akella Weatherspoon bringing himself up um, to the level of the other guys on there. Now, he's going to have to learn how to tackle a little bit, become a little tougher to play in the league. But someone is going to look at that and say, holy cow, this guy can use his tools to cover NFL corner, NFL wide receivers. Another guy I want to mention as we transition into most improved players from that secondary is Isaiah Oliver. Uh, he is not my most improved player, but he's certainly someone that I think improved a lot. We all expected it from him, and he lived up to that billing. And as you go into next year, he's going to be one of the leaders of the secondary, and he's going to be expected to be, you know, basically Cheeto. Uh, and I don't know that he can't. You know, I think he, he can live up to some of that hype that Cheeto has uh, because Isaiah is a great player. I think another player deserved to be mentioned in the most improved player category on defense is Josh Tupo. He was terrific inside. Uh, Insane. It, it, he was so good. Uh, for the three, four, nose tackle might be the most important position on the football field, and he was so good uh, inside. Uh, another player I want to mention before I get to my most improved player is Devin Ross because you mentioned him as well. Uh, he had a terrific year. Like you said, people were talking about moving his position. Another guy I want to mention before I get to my most improved player, Jay McIntyre. He quietly had a pretty good year at that fourth wide receiver spot uh, and really added something to the team uh, that they needed because they played four wide receivers a lot of the time, and he was good in both run blocking and catching the ball when needed to be. He made 32 catches this year. That's not, that's not nothing. Uh, that's three catches a game almost. And then uh, finally, my most improved player, Philip Lindsay. Oh, my God. Uh, you know, this is a guy that, like we said, we both didn't know if this guy was going to lead the team in rushing this year. Uh, and we both, I think, always thought Phil was a great player. And he was always the, 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 the spark plug. And I wrote this after the Colorado State game. He went from spark plug to tone setter in that Colorado State game. And that's such an important distinction. And, you know, in 2015, he had 653 yards on 140 carries, 4.7 yards a carry. In 2016, he had 244 attempts. 1,252 rushing yards and 5.1 a carry. And I want to say this. Yeah, sure, he only went up 0.4 yards and yards per touch or whatever. The reason why that's remarkable is because he went from basically a one-and-a-half backup running back type, not carrying the load at all in 2015, to carrying the entire load in 2016. And he did that. He improved his game while improving his workload and being known as the guy that's going to get the ball when he's on the field. So that's pretty incredible what Phil Lindsay did. And I had a hard time not giving him the MVP, but I couldn't not give him most improved player. He, what he did is insane because it wasn't in the plans. He didn't give the coaches a choice but to leave him in there on every, on every down and keep giving him the ball. I mean, remember going into the season, we're talking about a running back by committee type of thing with a Donovan Lee, with a Philip Lindsay, with a Michael Adkins, whose name you never even heard once this season, except for, I believe, when they were playing Idaho State. He, he got a touch at the Arizona game at the end. He maybe got a touch against one of the other trash teams Michigan. they played. He got a touch against Michigan, I think. Colorado so. State, I don't know. But he, uh, Philip Lindsay went in there and said, nah, this is my team. You're giving me the ball 
every time. And to be honest, he still didn't get enough touches. He needed more touches. He needed more touches against Washington. He needed more, more touches against Oklahoma State. Next season, he's going to be their bell cow. And I really think this offense is going to be hitched to him. So, and I don't know if you mentioned his receiving yards too, but catching the ball out of the backfield was insane for him. So, yeah, Phil out of the backfield uh, this season had 53 catches for 493 yards. So when you combine his yardage uh, from rushing and receiving, he had over 1,700 yards this year and 17 scores. I mean, I mean, like that's to, to big what, time, right? You t- talked about the story you were going to write before the San Antonio game if things went well. My story that I was going to write is Phil Lindsay cements himself as 2017 Heisman candidate. And I still think that he will be in that discussion if the things that have kind of gone his way continue to go his way. Yeah, I think – no, I think uh, I think he's going to have to play his way into it. His name isn't going to be brought up before the season. Okay. I mean, that's fair. I, he's going to have to play his way into it, but I think he needed to have a big game in the Alamo Bowl for people to be like, oh, my God, who is this guy? Now he goes and puts 140 in three, in, in three non-conference games. Then all of a sudden people are like, and the Buffs are 3-0 and or whatever. Then all of a sudden people are like, okay, this dude's legit. He's a, he's a candidate. But I think he's a, a little bit away. Now my most improved player was, I think, already brought up earlier by you, but Jimmy Gilbert. This dude went from... Like, eh, does he really belong out there? Is that the best option we have on the edge? To, wow, that's a pass rusher. I mean, a pure quarterback sack dude. And he was dangerous. I mean, he was the type of guy, I believe he's from, I believe he's from College Station. Well, he had a a Von Miller-esque impact on the Broncos defense, or on the Buffalo's defense. Now, Vaughn is a cut above, but I'm saying he forced teams to double-team him, and even when he was getting double-teamed, he was still winning some of those matchups, which is what Vaughn does on every single play. I mean, look what he did to Luke Falk. Right, I mean, exactly. He destroyed that offense by not giving the quarterback time, and, and you'll one thing I've learned about pass rushers while watching Vaughn Miller is you cannot grade pass rushers on their sacks. Because getting sacks is a lot has a lot to do with what the offense is doing. You have to grade pa- pass rushers on how much they win their matchups. And Jimmy Gilbert was winning his matchup a majority of the time. Now, Von Miller is a guy who wins his matchup on every single play. He doesn't get blocked. He's never been blocked. <laughs> so, Jimmy was on, a, a, he was on that trend. I mean, he's built himself to a place where he was winning his matchup 75% of the time. I just thought of the greatest tweet ever, Ryan. What? I'm gonna block Vaughn on Twitter and say I'm the first to block Vaughn Miller. <laughs> it's good. It's good. Don't tell the people. Don't tell. Well, the people I'm gonna get things. on it before it. This podcast true, doesn't true. come out till Thursday. Uh, but hey, uh, we got more coaching. We got more awards. Best coach uh, for me. This one's one I think people won't think about. But Clayton Adams, I think, wins Coach of the Year. What he did with that offensive line, which was to put it nicely, was in shambles going into this season. He turned them into an offensive line that was respectable, gave Sefo Lufau time, at least early in the season, and let Philip Lindsay run for the amount of runs he or the amount of yards he went through. You know, Clayton Adams worked with an offensive line that was vastly out talented. That's probably the position that the Buffs were most out talented with 
the entire season. He took Alex Kelly, turned him into a really, really good center. Alex Kelly was a solid center, but Alex Kelly turned into a really good center by the end of the year. Tim Lynott, uh, redshirt freshman All-American. That's, that's, or not redshirt, but the freshman All-American, that's no... That's not, you know, that's not not a big deal. So, and Clayton Adams was the one that did the way that. To say that is that is a big deal. That is a big deal. Uh, so, you know, I think Clayton Adams is a guy that's going to get uh, a little bit, especially with Levitt and Darren Cheverini bringing that energy to the Buffs. I think Clayton Adams will get a little bit forgotten about, but he also brings that energy to the Buffs, and he worked on that offensive line and turned them to a solid offensive line from one that was really tragic, and he's done a good job of recruiting guys that are going to be on that offensive line quicker than than later because, you know, the talent is in some of the younger classes and in the classes they're bringing in, not in the guys that they currently have. I think that's a good pick, and I'm also going to take a dark horse uh, coach of the year pick because... Uh, I'm not going to give it to Levitt, even though he did something amazing with that defense uh, over a two-year span. Uh, Charles Clark, to be honest, deserved a lot of credit too, but both of those guys likely won't be back in the fold for next season. I think in talking about your most improved player, you got to look at why did he improve so much. And to me, that goes on to Darian Hagan. A guy that no one was all all that excited about being hired onto the staff. Really, he took Philip Lindsay, and list, and he took a guy who can be coached. Philip Lindsay can be coached. Darian Hagen took him and and took him under his wing, and took him from good energy back to full on your guy bell cow. And I thought that was a really impressive job by him. If you want to hear how important Phil Lindsay is or Darian Hagan is to Phil Lindsay. Just I, ask Phil Lindsay? Am, well, I implore you to go read Paul Klee's story on it. Yes. Uh, we both are big fans of Paul Klee, but that story could not have been any more well-written, and uh, it's it perfectly sums up Darian Hagan's impacts to the CU Buffs. Yep, and Paul Klee's the best writer in Colorado, hands down. Not according to uh, our guy, Sia Lufau. Well, I, t- I don't take comments like that lightly. That's, that's very nice of Sia. I love that. I love that man's. Uh, anyways, we got one more award, and that's Best Freshman. Uh, I couldn't not give it to uh, – I don't know why I'm doing the double negatives now. I have to give it to Steven Montez. Uh, you know, I think Tim Lynott is your other really good candidate there. Uh, I think Jula Misi had a pretty solid season, too, uh, as a freshman. Bo Bichurek got some important uh, – blocking in there as a fullback I don't know if he's going to stay at that position it seems like they might move him to linebacker but uh Steven Montez is a guy who won them the Oregon game he was 83 of 140 this year with 1,078 yards nine TDs and five interceptions certainly not as good as Cephal Lufau but you talk about a redshirt freshman quarterback coming in there and being clutch and winning some football games and keeping them alive in some other ones Montez did basically everything that was asked of him this season uh which is I think all you can all you can do out of a freshman. Uh, he obviously was spectacular in the Oregon game, but uh, for being a redshirt freshman, Steven Montez did a hell of a job this season. Yeah, I mean, I dug and dug and dug and tried to come up with something different because we've given different awards uh, each. And so it's just, Tim Lanott deserves a lot of credit. It's just so hard to quantify what an offensive lineman does. Um, so... I guess I could give that to him, but it's, it's really hard for me to not give it to Steven Montez, who, look, we talk about the turnaround. We talked about that Oregon game. He started at quarterback, and I think that might be something 
that years from now maybe looked over, depending on his legacy. He builds a, a legacy like Cepho Lufau, where he quarterbacks this team for three years, takes them to heights never, never before seen by this. It'd more be like Cepho three and a half years because the amount of time he played this year. Right, it would. It, tr- it truly would. So unless he does that, and I actually think he has a great chance. Everyone knows that I've been on the Steven Montez train since the first second I saw him. Literally, the, I saw him throw one ball. And I was on his train. Parentheses one. Throw one parentheses one. One throw, and I was like, who's that? He's good. And that was before he was ever even a CU commit. So I think he has a great chance to do that. But if he doesn't, it's going to be overlooked that he was the starting quarterback in the game that a lot of people, I think, will look to as where it all turned around for CU. Steven was incredible. You saw flashes of where he could be. He is a little bit more thin than Cepho. They're... I think they're going to want to run him a similar amount. If they're going to do that, he's going to need to put on some pounds. But he's faster than Cepho. He has a better arm than Cepho. And he's more athletic than Cepho. He he really has the potential to be the next great quarterback from, from CU. Cepho has an ama- amazing legacy, and I tried as well as I could to, to sum that up writing about him. But Steven Montez could be legitimate NFL high pick at quarterback. I tried to talk to you a little bit about this post game in uh, the Alamo Dome, but do you think Montez's year where he played in eight games uh, and was, I would say, disappointing in some games, but definitely showed his flashes. He was a freshman once again. Uh, Do you think that it will have a positive impact on him or do you think people have something to be worried about because you know, especially in the Pac-12 title game uh, and in uh, the Alamo game, or I don't even know what to call it, the Oklahoma State game, he definitely did not look that great. It's really hard for a dude to just come in, be good, go out, come back in, be good. It's asking too much, uh, especially of a freshman. He got jerked around a lot, and I don't know if I necessarily like that. I mean, there was a time where he thought he was going to be a starting quarterback. Um, if he wins that USC game, we're still not sure if Sefa Lufau is the starting quarterback the rest of the year. Right. That's a question we'll never know the answer to. Right, and to be honest, I said it on the podcast before that game. I, I truly believe that had he won, it was his job. Um, and, wow, what a different situation we're talking about. Who knows? I mean, obviously Sefa came back, and he didn't lose another game until Washington. But this – this kid is special, and I don't necessarily think the experience can hurt. So he got exp- – I mean, he play- he's now played in a Pac-12 championship. He's played in a high-tier bowl game, and I realize he, ha- he has the most experience out of a CU quarterback returning since Joel Klatt. Yeah, in terms of where he's played, obviously, Sefo, yeah. you know, three years. Right. But in terms of the, the, the level of games he's played in, now, again, I don't like the way they jerked him around in those games because, like, if you're going to go with him, go with him. Just because he comes in and doesn't play very well, especially in the Alamo Bowl, I thought it was odd. I realized, I think Mike McIntyre was like, we, we have to put in Steven if we want to win. And then he's like, oh, wait, we're not going to win. Like, this will look better if we let Sefo finish it out. So, and I, it's true. I think it would have been a really bad look to take that away from Sefo and then continue to lose by a bunch, you know. Yeah, the podcast where we got called out on should see you play Steven Montez over Sefo Lufau, apparently that was a legitimate question on the sidelines on Thursday. Well, it certainly was in the second half after Sefo was banged up. And then they're like, oh, like, let's make sure that we don't – it doesn't look like we're not doing right by our seniors because that is – that's something that could be negatively recruited against you. So 
I think it's okay. Uh, he's going to be fine. He's he's a a quarterback, and he's going to he's going to be the quarterback of this team for three years. So I think he'll be okay. I think he's one of the only things you know about that's clear for next year, along with the wide receiving core. Uh, those in Phil Lindsay, I think those are three of the things that you know what you're going to get next year, or at least have some idea of what you're going to get. Now, looking at where they need to improve, uh, I think for me the obvious is punting in uh, special teams. I think the kicking and punting games were absolutely atrocious this season. They still never lost a game because of it. They never lost a game because of it. I said all year on the podcast that they would lose one game because of the kicker. Y'all should have seen the look that this kid was giving me during the Stanford game. Every time they clanked another one, he looked at me like, here it is. Here's the game they're going to lose because of kicking, and it's never happened. So, uh, yeah. But uh, I think that, I think the return games weren't as well as they could have been. Uh, other areas they could have improved. I think uh, their linebacking situation was their one downfall on defense. Uh, I think they really lacked that second level uh, in size and strength. And I think if you move Bicharet to that position, maybe he adds something there. Uh, they're bringing in a couple guys there. I know, and Drew Lewis is a guy that people are talking about very highly on that uh, defensive uh, in that linebacking situation. I think an area that people are forgetting about. And you might be right about this when you said it earlier where you said, you know, Phil Lindsay didn't give them the option to play a second running back. What happened to their second running back? You know, Kyle Evans looked pretty good early in the season. They had Michael Adkins. They had some options there. They didn't really end up using a second running back. I know Phil Lindsay was great, but you would think that they would have someone because I think you need two running backs, and they really didn't have anyone to rely upon in the second half of the season. And I've got one more area, and that's tight ends. Their tight ends were uh, very good at blocking, very, very good at blocking. I will give them all the credit in the world for that. But how do you not have any impact whatsoever on the game in terms of passing? Wild. I mean, it's honestly like they just discovered a new type of offense where you don't need, need tight ends. problem is that's not very good for their guy, Josh Follow, who they want to bring in. Uh, to play alongside NJ, not alongside, I guess, but in the same team. And, like, I've never seen anything like it where a team just didn't, just pretended like tight ends didn't exist at all, especially when they had such a great chance. Like, I would just, like, program at least one play in every game. Like, oh, let's make sure we get a throw into a tight end. Like, even George Frazier drops, it's like, oh, look, Josh, follow. You could be making that catch. That's true. George, how is George Frazier a captain? Like, how did that happen? I, I'm not gonna. I, I'm gonna swerve from that one. <laughs> okay, okay, okay. Fair enough. So I, I, I think you nailed it on the head there. Uh, pretty obvious concerns. Now they're gonna need to improve against on the offensive line because they're gonna be losing guys up there. Um, and there are some uh, questions whether or not Tim Lineout's gonna move to center. That that's been brief, uh, uh, broached. I know. I mean, he could do it. He's extremely athletic. I think that's something that you love to have in a center. But there's a lot of issues. Punting, I think, and, and kicking is – the fact that they didn't lose a game because of it is wild. Because Well, they might have lost the Michigan game because of punting. Well, that's true, and we had that conversation after. Yeah, they did lose – they lost the Michigan game because of punting. But the fact they didn't lose a game because of kicking, it's pretty crazy because their kickers are terrible. And you have a freshman in Davis Price who, um, you know, maybe he can improve. Diego Gonzalez honestly improved a lot when he – uh, when he between when he got on campus and when he got injured, he had made a huge leap. So I think you have hope there, but none of it was good enough from that from that side. No doubt, and I'll breeze past the positives because we already talked about it. But the legacies of this team, 
obviously the legacy of this team overall is going to be huge, uh, and we'll, we'll get into that. But I think we got to start with the legacy of Sefa Lufau, and there's no better person to talk to about this than you. Uh, what will Sefa Lufau's legacy be? Obviously, I've written about it. He goes down as a CU Buffs legend. I wrote that after the Washington State game. For you, uh, you know, he was the man that was meant to revive Colorado football. Did he do it? Yeah, of course he did. He, what, he took so many blows, and I think that's what I'll look back on is not just literal blows, but figurative blows. I mean, you, you, he talked about it in that story of literally people coming up to him saying, it's all your fault. When you're a quarterback, you're, I mean, you're a kid, like, that would, that's a dagger. And he said, you know, it hurt. And that's crazy that people will come up to you and say that. So to me, he's the guy that sat there and took all the heat for the beginning of the Mike McIntyre era. Now, of course, some of it goes on the coaches and stuff like that, but he took all the blows literally in the backfield. He's getting smashed. I remember the UCLA game. I wrote about it. He got killed on back-to-back plays, and finally the offensive line was like, this is enough. So to me, he's the guy who took all the hits so then they could later rise. And his legacy will be the by far the toughest quarterback in the history of Colorado football. Um, I know there's some people out there who will probably fight for Mike Machete, but this kid was the toughest college football player I've ever seen, period. I've never seen a kid put that toughness on the field day in and day out, and that made his team – become that finally after four years his team became what he was putting out there I think it was so cool to see that finally happen where they were all like damn we need to be we all need to be more like Cepho on the field so really I think his legacy is summed up in that 3,500 word article that I wrote but he he was meant for this he and Mike McIntyre were so alike in the sense that they were there to rebuild that it made all the difference. Yeah, I'm not going to add any more about Sefa because I think you've said it all, and uh, we've both been known to how we feel about Sefa What I will say is he holds every single major record in CU Buffs football history. Uh, he is the guy that will be known as the captain and the leader of this season. Uh, whoever was tweeting at me saying that Cephalufau should, you know, take his sorry bum off the field on Thursday. You're not a Buffs fan. I don't care what you think. You're not a Buffs fan. If you think Cephalufau at this point shouldn't have been on the field, uh, he did everything for this program. He gave his heart and soul to it, and uh, his legacy will be as great as anyone that's played for this program, with the exception of maybe Rashawn Salam. Uh, Byron White, you know, there's the, it's Cephalufau's in that second tier of great Buffaloes. To me, he's in the first tier. And it doesn't have to be about... I mean, the first tier, to me, is only those two guys. Right, so, right. I know. mean, it does, to me, it's not about awards. It's, it's about being a buff. And to me, Cephalufau redefined the Buffalo Heart Award. He redefined what a Buffalo Heart is. And he took it to another level. And to me, you could rename it the Cepho Lufau Buffalo Heart Award because he is everything that any player should ever strive to be when, when you talk about playing for the University of Colorado. And to me, I'll, I will remember him as 
the 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 essential, the quintessential Colorado Buffalo, because he left everything on the field, every single every single game. Looking at the defense, a lot of guys vacating there. Uh, Tedrick Thompson, Cheeto Bayouzier. Uh, you've also got uh, Okello Witherspoon, a couple guys on the defensive line. I think people remember this defense as a whole more than the individual names, uh, unless one of them really goes on to have a star-worthy NFL career, which is entirely possible because there are very good defensive players. But this defense will probably go down as one of the best defenses in Colorado history, if not the best, uh, especially the secondary. And uh, the legacy of this defense will be the ones that you know, are always going to hold that redonkulous turnover streak. I don't think that's ever going to be beat. Uh, Please never, ever say redonkulous. What was I watching? Again. I was watching How I Met Your Mother last night, and they used that. And that, yeah, so Sorry, sorry. Bled over. It's okay. Uh, I, was, I was very bad. V bad and dumb. It was bad. <laughs> it's one of the worst things that's ever been said on this podcast. Ah, since Will left, we'll make that qualifier. <laughs> It's literally the Olympics are bad and then redonkulous. I feel like my take about like Alex Kenny possibly being the most improved punter from summer might be or most yeah, essential player. The summer takes the summer takes of the BSM Buffs podcast were some of the worst takes on the internet. The takes match the weather. <laughs> exactly. It's an inverse yes. thing. But, uh, Ryan, what, what, what will you think of when you think about some of the other legacies on this team uh, going back and the guys that – not not only just on this team, but the guys that will be gone and, and things like that. I mean, to me, it's just all about the weight. I'll always remember the fact that it was this season for Colorado fans made the weight all worth it. And something that I've realized about sports is that reaching the mountaintop is awesome. You know, the Broncos win the, the, the Super Bowl last year. That's amazing. But it's really not necessarily the greatest part of being a fan when you put a, a season like this into perspective. Because you, you could be the Patriots and win their division, and I think there's seven straight first-round buys. At a certain point, winning becomes boring. And, yes, it's fun, and every week you get excited, but... When you look at a season like what Colorado had this year, it made it redefined what being a what being a sports what makes being a sports fan so great. Because you wait and 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 you go through all the hardship and all the pain and then all of a sudden this team takes off and it gives a fan base indescribable joy that can and I tried to and I tried to tell fans almost every week on this podcast there will ne- you in the rest of your life you'll probably never experience something like what you experienced this year in sports. It might it, it'll likely will never happen again in your life where a team that you're just begging and praying will be passable all of a sudden becomes a top tier team in their conference, wins their division and really this team brought so much joy to the city, to the alums, to the fan base that I think anyone that was a part of it will look back on it as the best season of anything they've ever seen in their entire life. Yeah, I, I hear a lot of people compare it to the 2007 Rockies that are Rockies fans. Uh, for me, it was very comparable to the not the Blackhawks that won their Stanley Cup. It's the one, the, one, the one before that lost in the Western Conference Finals that came out of nowhere, and then all of a sudden they, you know, they were good again. And uh, 
I think that season for me as a fan of that team, it, it was so remarkable because I, I watched the same guys that had struggled year after year that had done nothing. And then all of a sudden they're in the Western Conference Finals battling it out uh, in, in with all this what appears to be talent all of a sudden and this young influx and this new mindset. And I think that will be one of the biggest legacies of this team. It's the, it's the first team. It's not going it, to Hopefully for Colorado, it won't be the last team. It's not just a one and done. It's the one that starts the next era of Colorado football, to use Darren Cheverini's new, new, new terrible slogan. It's, it's terrible either way. It doesn't matter. I'll get it right. It's too cliche. Like, the rise was awesome. But anyways. The rise was awesome. Uh, you know what? You know what? I'm waiting to use this line on a story uh, when I recap the season, and maybe I'll just do it on the name the podcast this. The rise was real. It was real. It was yeah. real. And I think you're right there in this. Like, at some point, I think Colorado will win another national championship. And we'll have to look back and honestly say, you're gonna, the, you'll have to ask Colorado fans, what was your favorite season? The 2021 national championship or the 2016 rise? And I think a lot of fans will turn back and say 2016 was the year. And I, and I really think, I don't think there will ever be another – I plan to live a long and prosperous life. I don't think I'll ever see a season that, that was as amazing as this one. Since you're going to be living a long and prosperous life, Ryan, uh, you should keep your items safe uh, because you want to keep them with you the rest of your life. And the best way to do that is with Colorado Safe Outlet. What if I just get in the safe? It'll keep <laughs> me safe forever. You're going to starve. It's going to be like Schrodinger's cat. We're going to not know if you're alive or dead. True. Uh, Colorado Safe Outlet has the largest selections of safes in Colorado. Don't waste your time at big box retailers looking at safes you don't want or need and it doesn't suit your needs you don't want these safes instead come to the colorado safe outlet where an expert will set you up with exactly what you need no more no less once you pick the perfect safe they will deliver it to your home fast and easy check them out online at coloradosafeoutlet.com or visit them at one of their two locations in centennial or stapleton raises questions about uh what's going to be here for next year at cu boulder in terms of recruiting and what's coming back. Wait a second, I thought you said racist questions. Raises, <laughs> raises. Uh, there are certainly some very good recruits coming in. Two four-stars and Katie Nixon and Jake Moretti tagged to come in as of right now on Tuesday, January 3rd. Of course, these things could change. Uh, Jake Moretti's an early uh, commit, so, er, an early enrollee, so it seems like he is dead on to coming to see you. Uh, Katie Nixon, we're not... Uh, completely sure about yet, so look out for that one. Uh, Jonathan Van Deist is an early enrollee as well. Dante Sparacco, Jalen Jackson, all early enrollees. Uh, these are guys that are very solid football players, all three stars. I think people are very excited about that. And, uh, of course, there's another big recruit uh, in Tyler Lytle, who's an early enrollee. Xavier Newman, another uh, guy from DeSoto, people are excited about him. Dante Wigley from JUCO, Javier Edwards from JUCO, uh, Chris Mumbla from – I'm not going to get that name right until I hear it. <laughs> also from I JUCO. It's Chris Malumba. Malumba. Those three JUCO guys, uh, people are very excited about them. So, uh, Ryan – in terms of who's going to have some impacts next year right away, uh, who do you think it's going to be? Because, you know, here's a guy that might, Tyler Lytle, uh, depending on what happens with Sam Neuer, because the Buffs certainly use their backup quarterback a lot this year. Yeah, but I also think Sam Neuer is a lot better than I thought he was going to be. I didn't like Sam Neuer's high school tape. Um, seeing him a couple times, 
hearing about him. I mean, people inside the program, and you always have to take things like that for with a grain of salt. But usually if a guy can't play, the coaches aren't going to tell you he really, really can play. And that's what you hear from play, people talking about Sam Neuer, um, which would be interesting. I mean, there's nothing better than having a quarterback competition with two really good quarterbacks if that's an issue maybe going into this camp or maybe a, a camp down the road. So, yeah, maybe Tyler Lytle, but I think Tyler Lytle's a guy, 6'4", 210. He needs to get in the room and throw up some weights because you need to, I guess, you know, especially with, I think, this new discovery of, that, the, that the Buffs have of we're going to run our quarterback, they need to build bigger guys. And so he's going to have to get in the weight room. But a guy like LaVisca Chenault, um, obviously based on his name, is going to be awesome. But honestly, he's a four-star wide receiver, so he actually is going to be awesome. I think he's actually down to a three-star now. Four-star on uh, Scout, which yeah. is what we use because that's where Adam is, and we're loyal to Adam 100%. Oh, no doubt. <laughs> so uh, he's he's a favorite of mine. Both, I think you have to say that Van Dyce and Sparaco, they have to be part of your favorites because those dudes were the first two commits, and they went out there and, like, they might as well have been coaches. For them. Yeah. They might as well have been coaches. They're out there recruiting, tweeting at dudes, Instagramming pictures of these dudes. Like they, they're basically on the recruiting staff. And two kids from Colorado, putting on for the team like that, they are already your fan favorites. I've already, I don't care what you think, they are your fan favorites in this class because they've already like put on the, they've already got the CU across their chest, and they're putting on for the program already. So that's really awesome. Uh, but I do really like Tyler Lytle. I think he's going to be a great player for them going forward. I love Katie Nixon. I love Jake Moretti. Obviously, these are the, the, the headliners of this class. But <clears throat> Jalen Jackson, to me, is a guy who's dealt with some injuries. But he's going to bring in, as long as he can come back, he's going to bring in that that shifty, speedy, Small and, and, and five, you know, five ten, one seventy one. The bu- the Buffs have been looking for a guy like that. I mean, you thought Donovan Lee could be that kind of scat back, electric player, like almost like what Tyreek Hill is doing for the Kansas City Chiefs. But I think he's going to be once he comes back and gets fully healthy. I think he's going to be a, a serious playmaker for this team. So that's my. I think I gave you five. That's my top five there. The one guy I'm absolutely in love with is sophomore JUCO transfer Dante Wigley. That's the guy I'm in love with. I think he's going to be the best recruit of this class. Uh, Obviously, it's a little bit different uh, because he's a JUCO guy, but I think he comes in and has an immediate impact next year. And I think you're looking at Dante Wigley and Isaiah Oliver as the starting two corners uh, from some of the things I've heard. Have Uh, you seen a picture of Javier Edwards? That's That's my next guy. That's my number two. I think Javier Edwards is the guy that needs to be the biggest impact player right away because they need a nose tackle. And I don't think Jace Frankie is the answer, at least right now. I, I just haven't seen enough from Jace Frankie. You just see a picture of his face? Like, he makes Josh Tupo look like a like as skinny as a model. Right. Javier Edwards is huge. My gra- a load. I wrote that story when my, gra- out when my grandma was in town. I'm right next to my grandma. And she just goes, holy it. Who the hell is that? I'm like, that's the guy the Buffs just got. She's like, oh, he must be good at football. I'm like, it looks that way. Big man's. He is a big man. Uh, Javier Edwards for sure. So Xavier Newman. That was another one I wanted to mention. Xavier Newman, the uh, Under Armour game, the high school All American Under Armour game, whatever they call it, just absolutely putting Greg Rogers to work. Just 
just taking him, and I'll show you the clip right now. It's in front of me, Ryan. He just takes him and goes all the way off with him, and it, it's really impressive, just that one clip uh, uh, of, of many I've seen of Xavier Newman. So I'm really excited to see that guy play. I'm excited to see Jake Moretti play, and I think both uh, Moretti and Newman could have immediate impacts, especially with the offensive line, as we talked about a little bit earlier in the show. And I think one of those three wide receiver recruits is going to end up being good uh, between Chanel, Jackson, and Nixon. I haven't picked my favorite yet, but uh, I think all three guys are going to end up being solid. One's going to be a cut above the rest, though. I think you're right, um, but I love that group of guys. I mean, they're so stacked a wide receiver in this class. We haven't even mentioned a guy like Maurice Bell, uh, a California kid, uh, and I think there's – nope, that's all. But, I mean, Katie Nixon, he's listed as an athlete, another guy who could be that little scat-back playmaker for them. I mean, he's 5'8", 175. They're trying to get speed for this offense because – this offense now is all about getting playmakers in space, and this season so much of that was Phil Lindsay. I mean, it's just clear him out with the wide receivers, flick the ball out to, to Phil Lindsay and let him go. Well, Phil Lindsay's great at that, and he's become a long way with his vision. But if you can give this ball to a guy like uh, Katie Nixon or a guy like Jalen Jackson and just let those dudes make plays out there, then you're talking about you know from 15-yard gains to touchdowns. I got to do a read for Mad Dogs real quick, Ryan. I know it's not in the playbook, but uh, Mad Dogs, the official bar of the Colorado Buffaloes <laughs> now. I'm actually pretty sure the Colorado Buffaloes own Mad Dogs. I was going to get on the Wikipedia page for Mad Dogs. There was none, so I couldn't do it. And just say owner, Colorado Buffaloes. Fan base. Yeah. They took over that bar uh, down in San Antonio on the Riverwalk right next to the team hotel. Uh, not only the fans, the team took over that bar as well. The staffers, everyone was in there. Uh, grand old time. Uh, it took all other bars with the name Dogs, especially in per- on Pearl Street, to shame. Uh, there's no other dog bar that will be as good as uh, Mad Dogs. Mad Dogs went off. It's funny because, like, it's not that good of a bar. <laughs> not at all. It's completely normal, regular, like, British, British pub. <laughs> but, it, like, see, like, we turned it into, like, a club. Like, by the time, like, 1 o'clock went turned around that place was jumping like 12 o'clock people are just eating there sitting in there eating food one o'clock it's like how is this a combination between the walrus and absinthe yeah it went off it was fun so we got to give a shout out to them uh we said we would touch on basketball so let's do that real quick basketball's last game came against utah they looked i'm good yeah they, <laughs> they looked like that uh they looked great in the first two minutes a lot of positives from those first two minutes and then they looked uh uh, yeah, just yeah. Uh, so that's that's that ten and four team. Yeah, yeah. Don't. Why can't why can't two sports be good at once? It's against the rules. Uh, should we start talking about women's basketball on the show? I don't know. The women's basketball team lost their first conference game too. But Kenny Leonard is still really dope. Kenny Leonard is the most entertaining basketball player on campus right now. That's not even close to a hot take. She is awesome to watch play, and I. I I will implore you. I, I mean, seriously, if you're around town and you got nothing to do on like one of those non-conference trips for the men's team, and most of you don't have anything to do, just check out a women's game. I promise you. I'm, I mean, I'm not a big women's basketball guy, but uh, I've gone to a few, not even out of work. I just went and I was like, oh, I got to see what Kenny Leonard's up to, dropping thirty and whatnot. She is fun to watch. Yeah, I mean, you're talking about someone who will likely go down as a great buff, and. 
that I mean, when it comes down to being a, an alum of the University of Colorado, you you love great buffs. Go watch a great buff. There was a time when the women's basketball team sold out the Coors Event Center every single night. That's all I'll say. And I think the women's basketball team. I don't think they ever sold it out every single night. They were close to it in the 90s. They got good, good fans. According to the first episodes of CU Sports Mag uh, that, I, that I've seen going back in the archive, they were getting some really good attendance numbers. Yeah, but, I mean, it would look like a, a, a good crowd for the, for the men's team that we've seen before Tad I, Boyle took over. Either way, I'll say I think the women's team's getting close to that point again, uh, especially with one of their worst seasons ever just last year, I think the women's team is headed in the right direction. Speaking of a team that's headed in the right direction, uh, I think this year is going to be a little bit rough for the women's team. I don't know why I'm off on this women's basketball tangent, but I am, and we'll just go with it. Uh, they took care of Kentucky in non-conference. They took care of a lot of teams that I don't think were that good, and I think they're going to struggle a little bit in conference schedule. But I think come next year, once you get uh, Alexis Robinson's sister uh, and Kennedy Leonard in that backcourt, you're looking at a team that's going to be very good, and most of these players on this team are all young sophomores that are the best contributors. So uh, Someone is pissed off about what you just talked about, women's basketball, for this long after trying to talk about men's basketball. It's kind of hard when it feels like everything that – nothing has changed. You know what I mean? We've talked about this team now for about a month, and we're still talking about the same issues. We're still talking about the same lack of care, lack of – desire to win basketball games and at this point there i know you and tyler were talking kind of optimistically over here before the podcast saying though there are a couple of wins from being back on track i'm more of the idea that there are a couple losses away from the wheels coming off because this 10 and 4 record is very misleading based on the teams they played put the tape on and you're talking about one game i think where they played good basketball and that was against xavier this team hasn't put anything on tape that tells me, oh, they could turn it around and become a good football, become a good basketball team. Probably not going to become a good football They're team either. Not be good. They might. I mean, George King, like, they do need tight ends over there on the football team. Classic you basketball need. player. To, <laughs> did you know this tight end played basketball in college? George King would make a great tight end. Just bulk him up a little bit, use those huge hands he has. Rankings, which buffs basketball players would become the best tight end. I'll do that in the offseason when, when we have nothing to talk about. So... I just don't see anything yet where I'm like, oh, okay, well, that shows promise. They just don't care. And so I just think they're a couple losses away from packing it in and saying, let's go be accountants and whatnot. Well, if you got to pack it in and have a good night by yourself, you should probably head on to the Life Flower Dispensary in Glendale, just south of Denver. Serves medical and recreational marijuana until midnight. They're a one-stop shop and have something for everyone. Whether you're a smoker or prefer to use tropical treatments for severe pain, Life Flower carries a huge variety of edibles, infused sodas, concentrates, flowers, and they carry glass too. Check out the menu at weedmaps.com or specific strains and price details. You just show up to Life Flower off of Weedsdale. Maybe if you go there before you go to a CU basketball game, it might be more fun. Yeah, maybe that'll get them like... Also, there's... <laughs> you keep saying tropical treatments instead of topical treatments great but i could use some tropical treatment i saw like we saw a palm tree we saw a couple palm trees in san antonio that was like it's tropical treatment that was like if you're like addicted to something and you like get like one little drop of it like all i want now is like to be beach. on a beach yep, me uh too. 
But hey, I'm sure all the listeners want is for this podcast to finally be over, which it is now. Uh, for Ryan Koningsberg, I'm Jake Shapiro. Follow all of our content on bsnbuffs.com and the site's content on bsndenver.com. And if for your big ba- for you big basketball fans out there, we will be making a shift towards basketball where we'll be talking a lot more about it on this podcast. So buckle up. It's going to buckle up, buckaroos. Also, we're going to ship the podcast earlier in the week coming soon because of all the basketball games are, you know, Wednesday, Thursday, and then Saturday, Sunday. So it makes no point to have a podcast that drops on Thursday morning. So we'll be doing that soon. So heads up on that. And uh, thanks for listening as always. Follow all of our content uh, on social media as well. Facebook and Twitter. Facebook's getting some likes here all of a sudden. Uh, You can join the bandwagon. Uh, BSN Buffs on Facebook and BSN Buffs on Twitter. And shout out to whoever said that last week's pod was unlistenable and is probably still listening right now. Yeah. This week's pod was way better, so thanks for making it through. Uh, we'll see you next time.